the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. We must stay humble and be broken over sin. I love the tenderness of these chapters. Yes, there was a radical thing that happened here, and that part is grievous. But the reality is that these people were gripped in their hearts about what they had done wrong against God. Let me tell you something that is worse than sinning against God. You say, what could possibly be worse than sinning against God? I'll tell you what is worse than sinning against God is when we develop a hard heart about our sin towards God. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Ezra. Is there an area of your life that God's putting his finger on? Some compromise or relationship that he's urging you to turn away from? The worst thing you can do is keep putting it off. The longer you rationalize and tolerate that sin, the more you distance yourself from God. In today's teaching, Pastor Gary shares how even worse than sinning against God is hardening your heart to Him. Ezra had a tender heart toward the things of God. Like him, you can keep your heart tender too by always seeking and responding to God's heart. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in Ezra, chapters 6 through 10, for part two of today's message titled, The Beauty of Brokenness. It says in chapter 7, 10, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Ezra is going to be a very important person in the life of Israel and including, as we read it, in our lives even today as a church and for us individually. And he is going to bring an element, a much-needed element, to the people of Israel and a good reminder for us as well. Now, that element that he brings, I can't just say it in a word. So I'm going to use a couple of phrases to describe what Ezra actually brings to the people. And it has to do with his own personal walk with God. Ezra is a man of deep devotion. He is a man who is sincerely committed to God. You see it in his life. You see it modeled. In fact, he does more modeling than he even does in terms of speaking. He shows the people by example what a life is that is devoted to God. And let me tell you one thing in particular that is noteworthy about Ezra. He was a man who was extremely sensitive to what pleases God and what displeases him. 
he had that very tender spirit knowing what things pleased God and what things displeased God. And you didn't need to tell him. He already felt convicted about the things that displeased God. And he was just under that constant just sensitivity to the heart of God. Whatever broke God's heart broke his heart. That was the man he was. Wasn't weak in this regard, okay? You know, when you start talking about sensitive, you know, don't think that's only a female word, okay? It applies to men too, especially in terms of your walk with God. Be sensitive to the heart of God. And let me explain Ezra like this. You know how Terry and I have three kids, and every child has a unique personality, and you know, and sometimes they're similar, but sometimes they're very different. And if you have children, you know that some of your children are like dogs, and some of your children are like cats, And by that I mean this, that you know a dog, how a dog can be sensitive to like when a dog's done bad, all you have to do is kind of look at them and then that dog just kind of cowers and they shake and tremble, the tail goes down and and they have a conscience versus a cat, (laughs) all right? You know, a cat can be up on your counter licking the butter and you're like, get off, get off, and that just kind of looks at you like... You know, with an attitude, right? And so children can be like that. You can have a child that all you have to do is look at, and they're hypersensitive, and they cower, and the tail goes down. And you have other kids, you look at them, and they're like, so? You know what I mean? All right, Ezra is the dog kind of a kid. He's the kid that all you have to do is look at, and he just instantly is, he's just gripped with, okay, I'm doing something wrong here, and I need to get right with God. That's Ezra. And what we see here is even before he leaves Babylon, with the five or 6,000 people towards Jerusalem, he has this moment where he wants to humble himself, fast, and pray. Look at the story here, chapter 8. We're going to just kind of make our way through the closing chapters. Go to chapter 8 and look at verses 21 through 23. It says this, There by the Ahava Canal, this is 821, There by the Ahava Canal I proclaimed a fast. Now notice he's writing in the first person now. I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this And he answered our prayer. So your attention. So here's what Ezra's doing. He's like, okay, we're getting ready to go on this great journey. We need to ask the Lord's protection. We better fast and pray. Because he says it would be kind of inconsistent for us to go to the king of Persia before they leave Babylon and say, could you send a few soldiers with us? Because we're a little scared about the 900-mile journey. Seeing as how we already told the king, hey, God's gracious hand is on us. We're well protected. Don't worry about us. So Ezra's like, I can't go back to the king now and ask for some soldiers. So what are we going to do? Let's humble ourselves. Let's get on our knees before God. Let's pray. And God gave them his favor. In fact, read further, chapter 8, verse 31. This is on the 12th day of the first month. We set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem where we rested three days. So four months to get there, 900 miles through rugged terrain. They arrive in Jerusalem. They leave roughly around March. They arrive somewhere around July, and they rest for three days. You know, you traveled 900 miles over four months. You need to rest a little bit. So they're kicking back. They're resting a little bit. All of a sudden, some of the leaders of Israel come to Ezra. I mean, he's a priest. He's a scribe. They say to him, 
You're not going to like what's been going on during the 80 years since the first group returned here. Let me tell you what's been going on. The leaders say to Ezra, some of our men have been marrying the pagan women around us. They've intermarried with these pagan women, these godless women who don't even worship God. And Ezra reacts here pretty dramatically. Look here, chapter 9. Pick up the story, chapter 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then, at the evening sacrifice... I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed, O oh my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. All right, your attention for a moment. The rest of that whole chapter is his prayer, okay? But I want you to understand what's happening here. Here's the scene. Ezra no sooner gets to Jerusalem, kicks off his sandals after a rugged hike. He's slumped back in an easy chair. He's got a remote in one hand and a blended coffee, caramel latte, decaf, no whip in the other. And all of a sudden, some leaders come to him and say, hey, don't choke on your blended coffee because I got some bad news for you. You know our own people? Yeah. They've intermarried with the Ammonites and the Hittites and parasites and all these kind of termites. It's terrible. And you need to do something. Well, he's very animated. He's pretty dramatic. He gets up and he tears his clothing and he pulls hair out of his head and his beard here. Now, that seems to us like over the top, but actually that's typical for the culture. In the culture, that was a sign of tremendous grief and mourning. Here's the deal. He is grieved over the sins of the people. He didn't even commit the sins, but he's brokenhearted. And so he falls on his knees, the Bible says, and he just begins to pray. And he lifts up his hands to God. And he just begins to intercede on behalf of the people. And now he's praying here. And I want you to see the response of the people. Because again, he's not even reprimanding them. He's not even preaching to them. He's just on his knees before God praying. And all of a sudden, a crowd gathers, it says. And people gather around him. And he's modeling something here. Look at verse 10. First two verses of chapter 10. I want you to see what's happening here. Verse 1 of chapter 10. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping, and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, a large crowd, men and women and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. And then... Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Check this out. Shechaniah understood the character of God. 
and we need to get this as well. You know when you're not walking with God. You know when you're not right with God. Let me tell you something. The sins that we commit against God will always be met by the loving, tender forgiveness of God if we come clean and confess our sins to him. And Shechaniah understood this. He says, we've done something unfaithful. He doesn't downplay the unfaithfulness, but he says there's still hope for Israel. There is always hope for you and me when we get right with God, always. It doesn't matter whatever you've done. When we get right with God and we come clean and we confess our sins before a holy God, he is always gracious. Isn't this what John said, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's always hope with God. When we come before him, humbling ourselves, repenting and confessing of our sins. Shechaniah understood this. He doesn't downplay it. All these people, now I want you to imagine, hundreds, probably thousands of people have gathered around Ezra. His unspoken teaching, just he's modeled it. He's weeping before God. He's confessing the sins of the people. He has his arms outstretched. He's praying to, to God in heaven. And the people gather around him. And Shechaniah says, we've been unfaithful because we have married pagan, foreign wives. But there's still hope for Israel. Now let me tell you what the actual sin is here because I don't want you to be confused about this. What was the sin of Israel here? Does God have a problem with interracial marriages or intercultural marriages or international marriages? The answer is absolutely not. God does not have a problem with interracial or intercultural marriages. You can look in the Bible and see plenty of examples. Moses married a woman from Africa, Ethiopia. By the way, Moses wasn't a white guy either. We got to get our Western mindset out of this. We have pictures of Jesus in our house. He's blue-eyed and fair-skinned. I don't think so. <laughs> Moses was Middle Eastern. He was a Jewish man from Israel, and he marries an Ethiopian woman. We also see in the genealogical record of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, a Jewish guy by the name of Salmon marries a Gentile prostitute. Her name was Rahab. Boaz mentioned in the Bible, also in the genealogical record of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, Boaz marries a Gentile woman from Moab, Ruth. That's the book of Ruth in your Bibles. There are different examples in the Bible of interracial, intercultural marriages. God doesn't have a problem with that. That's not the sin of the people here. The issue is, in those examples I gave you with Moses and Salmon and Boaz, the women that they married, though they were foreign, though they were pagan, they turned to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they became proselytes of Judaism, and they were devoted with their husbands to the worship of the one true living God. The difference between those examples and this story is that the Jewish men had married women who were not proselytes to Judaism. They were pagan women who worshiped pagan foreign gods. That was the sin issue. The sin issue is never the exterior. The potential sin issue is a spiritual problem. When two people are not on the same page in worshiping the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible. That's the issue that God has here. And let me tell you, this was particularly grievous because, check this out, you need to understand context here, because I don't want anybody to misuse Scripture here and misapply it. This is particularly 
grievous because there was the potential for the annihilation of the Jewish race. Once they began to intermarry with the pagan people, they would have been absorbed into the pagan culture. They would have not have been a distinct people of God. And so therefore, a radical remedy was introduced into this story. The radical remedy, when you read the rest of Ezra, is that Ezra, as a result of being convicted about the sin and the people likewise, they had to turn their pagan women, turn them back in. They had to give them back. They had to, you know, take them back to where they got them. Hopefully they had a receipt, otherwise they're going to get store credit. But they had to take them back. They gave them back. They gave them all back. Now, don't look at this and think, oh, good, there's a Bible story where I can go home and get rid of Bozo that I'm married to. Because he's kind of, you know, pagan. He's a pagan guy. I'm going to give up pagan Paul. Listen, pagan Patty. Don't go down that route. Don't think that just because you have a story here where people turned away their pagan spouses, that's not an example that is repeated in the Bible. It's not a pattern. It's a one-time thing. So I know you thought you married a stud, turned out to be a spud, but stay with him. (laughs) Stay with him, okay? This is a one-time thing because it was a radical potential problem of the race of people. All right. Don't use the Bible to justify what you want to do. Now, I want you to notice the overall response. This is the takeaway from these final chapters. And I put together a list just from chapters 8 through 10. I'm just going to read it. Notice here. Notice the reaction. Notice what is happening. It says, we humbled ourselves. We fasted. We petitioned our God. Ezra says, I sat there appalled. I fell on my knees. I am too ashamed and disgraced. It says how they were praying, confessing, weeping, how they acknowledged we have sinned greatly. Do you get the idea of what is happening here? What is happening here is that the people become broken over their sin. This is an important principle in our running list of principles from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Number nine on the list from these chapters, we must stay humble and be broken over sin. I love the tenderness of these chapters. Yes, there was a radical thing that happened here, and that part is grievous. But the reality is that these people were gripped in their hearts about what they had done wrong against God. Let me tell you something that is worse than sinning against God. You say, what could possibly be worse than sinning against God? I'll tell you what is worse than sinning against God is when we develop a hard heart about our sin towards God. We will sin from time to time. We are flesh, okay? Even as Christians, we pursue righteousness. We pursue holiness. We're not perfected until we're with the Lord. In the meantime, there's going to be a struggle of our flesh and our spirit. And there's going to be different times that we will fall into sin and we will displease God and we will disobey him. I'm not encouraging it. I'm just saying it as a matter of fact about our flesh. We are weak and except but by the grace of God, we will have victory over our flesh and over temptation. We are frail people until the day we die and get a glorified body and go to be with the Lord. And when we sin, not if, when, The most important thing is to be broken about it. The most important thing is to feel sorry for it. To stay tender-hearted towards God. To come before Him broken. Yes, maybe even at times weeping over our sin. Confessing it towards God. 
You look at every major revival in American history, there were three main major revivals. Each one was precipitated by repentance and people confessing their sins and weeping over their own brokenness before God and feeling sorry for offending him. When David was confronted about his sin with Bathsheba, when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, David had broken several capital offenses for which he should have been killed. He had committed adultery. He was an accessory to murder. He coveted. He lied. And when he's confronted about his sin by Nathan the prophet, he writes Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, he says this in verse 16. He says about God, he says, you do not delight in sacrifices or I would bring them. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. And then he says this. He recognizes, he says, even the old Testament, even the Mosaic law and righteousness through the shed blood of animals is not enough to cover my offense. And he adds this, Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He says, the only thing I have is to call upon the mercy of God in my brokenness and to come before you, Lord, and to say I'm sorry and to repent of my sin and to confess my sin to you. And only then can I experience your mercy and your grace. We need to be broken people before God. We need to be people who are genuine and deal with the heart issues of our lives before God and then run to his loving arms and experience his grace and his forgiveness. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 19th century, said, quote, whenever God means to make a man great, he always breaks him to pieces first. We can never expect to be of any great value to God until we are broken as people before him. And let me tell you something. In every culture and every society around the world, this is universally true, things that are broken are typically worthless. You break something in any culture, you, you break a, a dish, you break a vase, you break something, you discard it, you throw it away. Only in the kingdom of God is something broken of great value. When we are broken before God and we humble ourselves and we are sorry over our sin, that is a beautiful thing in the sight of God. There are some things that will change in our church. I will tell you one thing that will never change. We will always be a church that deals with the heart issues. We will always be a church that calls sin for what it is, that feels sorry for sin, that confesses sin, that yes, sometimes even weeps over sin so that we can experience the forgiveness from God for our sin. That's vital. Because otherwise, if we just come to church, if church is just about socializing with your friends and having a cup of coffee and singing a few songs and we never deal with the heart issues and we never examine our own sinful lives, then we miss the grace of God and church becomes nothing more than a country club for the spiritually elite. That will not happen here because we will always be people who deal with the sin issues of our hearts. So that we come humbly before him and broken before him and then we experience his wonderful grace and his forgiveness. God is a loving God, folks. God is a forgiving father. He is compassionate and merciful and he wants to forgive us and to cleanse our hearts. We have to come before him like they did in this story, humble, 
broken, sorry for sin so that God can do his wonderful, forgiving, restoring work in our lives. Throughout this Old Testament book, Ezra reminds the Israelites that they are God's people and that God has not forgotten them. We hope that listening to Cornerstone Connection also reminds you that God has not forgotten you and that you belong to Him. If you'd like to learn more about Cornerstone Connection or hear more teachings by Pastor Gary, we have a few ways to do that. One way is downloading our mobile app, or you can subscribe to the Cornerstone Connection podcast. If you look online at cornerstoneconnection.cc, you'll also find additional messages as well as companion resources that offer a deeper look into Pastor Gary's studies. You mean a lot to us here at Cornerstone Connection, and we'd love to hear from you. Our number is 703-771-1500. That's 703-771-1500. Cornerstone Connection comes to you as a ministry of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. We'd love to meet you in person, so come see us Sundays at 830, 10, or 1145 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. for our time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship. Find out more at cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all for today, but join us again for more from God's Word right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not alone Real love is calling Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.